90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, well, it's been an exciting week this week, John, especially last Saturday morning. Did you get your <laughs> breakfast shaken, not stirred? <laughs> um, actually, well, I was. Come on, you know me. I'm not up before nine o'clock in the morning. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Much like most scientists that I talk to, we awoke at seven o'clock to this really big earthquake here in Oklahoma, and all of us had some sort of variation on a theme of, is my dog shaking the bed? No? Okay, it's an earthquake. <laughs> well, you see, so that's that's a geologist, is we woke up about 7 o'clock. Where you talk to any geophysicist, they're going to tell you it's 7.02 and 44 seconds origin time. <laughs> exactly. Because that time true. has been burned into their brain from downloading <laughs> all of the data from this event. Oh, man, that is so true. That's hilarious. Um, so it's really interesting because this was the biggest earthquake that Oklahoma's ever had. And not... Uh, in, in recorded and instrumented history yes that yes. is absolutely true in instrumentation language um because we've got some big quaternary faults here oh, um, yeah, yeah <laughs> really big but um so you're absolutely right so anything that we've been able to record um and it was really loud and very long and very disturbing and totally not related there was a earthquake symposium that was planned by the geological survey here that um, I've been in the last two days. So it made it even more interesting that this earthquake happened right before it. Right. And, I mean, I, I was sitting here at my desk working in Pennsylvania. And normally, Saturday mornings are a very quiet time for me to be working. And my phone just started vibrating across my desk <laughs> at about 7.03. Yep. And... <laughs> yep. Because, you know, there was 40-plus seconds travel time to where a lot of people that I know live. Right. And it was a continuous thing all morning. I ended up making some of my ground motion videos. I'll mm -hmm. link those in. And actually, I found out some of those got passed around some of the different news stations. So that was kind of cool. That's cool. Uh, unfortunately, um, most of the seismometers in the area, even ones pretty close to my house, clipped in the acceleration scale, which means oh. they couldn't measure anything larger because they're not strong motion instruments. Uh, but I would say the, the ground displacements, even in northwest Arkansas, where my family lives, they were pushing two and a half to three millimeters north-south displacements. Man, you could tell. It was it was really loud. We have an old house, and it sounded like it was coming down. Like, it was a lot of motion. I mean, you know, everything gets exaggerated in the moment. It's really scary, but right. I, I didn't mean the moment as an earthquake pun, but... <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was very, it was very interesting. Uh, obviously, one of those calls was from me immediately following that. But um, right, <laughs> yeah, we got into some pretty good Twitter conversation. Um, a lot of which was sort of followed up on um, at this earthquake conference that I'd been at the last two days. So that was that was pretty interesting. Yes, that's another reason to follow us on Twitter if you don't already. Uh. Yes, <laughs> yes. And so today, the USGS was talking about how you know they know these earthquakes happen before they see it in the data because of Twitter. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is a little bit of a time delay from the data. And then also, it takes time for the seismic energy to spread across the network. Right, exactly. And so they said that they can instantly tell where, you know, not 
exactly where the epicenter is, but, you know, close to it because of it and because of Twitter. And that was just unbelievable to me. Like, this was this is not a joke. Like, they really look at this. Um, so that oh, was kind of yeah. that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, and then there's the the Did You Feel It page that people mm-hmm. can fill out mm-hmm. on the USGS site. And when I looked in the last few days, so from when the earthquake happened till now, there had been almost 60,000 Did You Feel It reports filled out. Wow. Which is um, fantastic. I mean, and they were very far ranging. Of course, Oklahoma, Kansas, Arkansas, Texas, Missouri, uh, but also places like Nebraska and oh, even a little yeah. bit further out west. Yes, yeah, this one was felt over quite um, quite a long range, and um, they sort of spoke to that a little bit, um, but the Did You Feel It page, if you have ever felt an earthquake, you should absolutely go on and fill this stuff out, because they use this data, um, and so today somebody asked, well, how long, you know, can I still fill out the, the page since the Prague earthquake, which was five years ago, and the answer was, the 1964 Alaska earthquake is still up on there. <laughs> Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So um, absolutely, if you felt this thing on Saturday, go to this, you know, you can find it on earthquakes.usgs.gov and fill it out because they use this data um, for all kinds of things. And that would be super helpful to them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I guess Oklahoma is getting kind of used to having earthquakes, but maybe not of this magnitude. <laughs> uh, right, exactly. I mean, literally and figuratively. Um, right. <laughs> so um, starting in 2011, you know, we had a really big earthquake, um, a 5.6, and now this one has been adjusted to a 5.8. So it's the biggest one we felt, and a lot of people said, yeah, whatever. I knew it was an earthquake. I went back to doing whatever I was doing. I mean, that's, you know, my parents live sort of close to Pawnee and it was the same thing. My mom and dad were like, yep, that's an earthquake. Whereas in 2011, I mean, everyone just freaked out. (laughs) Right. And it is always fun to go look at, you know, YouTube videos where people are showing the water in their pool sloshing. Right. uh, You know, looking at the rough period of that or looking at things swaying from security cameras. That's always interesting. Uh, but there is a lot of lore surrounding these that at some point I think we need to have a show to talk about earthquake oh, common misconceptions. <laughs> my my notes from this conference, I mean, are just jam-packed with little stars, which are my ideas for future shows. So yeah, we're definitely <laughs> we're definitely going to get our money's worth out of this. Um, I said even uh, 60 Minutes, I guess, did a earthquake an earthquake show. Um, I guess it was in the hmm, last spring about Oklahoma earthquakes. But here in Oklahoma, nobody saw it because the OKC Thunder were in a playoff game. <laughs> that was on TV. <laughs> and then, of course, only in Oklahoma, it got interrupted because there were tornadoes in central Oklahoma that day. So, of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there's some national media associated with this. And I heard they were going to replay it this week, actually. So maybe those of us experiencing the quakes can hear about it. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) Well, and also, you know, we talked about looking on social media, but you do have to be a little bit careful because I saw a lot of pictures floating around that were damaged from this earthquake, supposedly, that were actually damaged from 
earthquakes that occurred decades ago in different states. Oh, absolutely. And this happened in the Prague earthquake, you know, instantly. Um, I remember getting a phone call and somebody said, I saw that I-35 collapsed, you know, and I said, what are you talking about? Like, I was actually, as were you, in the field. Um, right. We putting... had driven on I-35 to yes. put out seismometers. Exactly. So we're like, really? Crap. When did that happen? <laughs> so there's a lot of that, a lot of that going around. Um, I definitely encourage people to go, you know, straight to the USGS, um, the earthquakes.usgs.gov, and also um, there's a lot of Oklahoma agencies that are working on earthquakes.oklahoma.gov, I think, and uh, yes, earthquakes.oklahoma.gov, and some similar things put out by the OGS, the Oklahoma Geological Survey, talking about these quakes, and it kind of puts some of these sort of rumors that float around to bed a little bit. Right, absolutely. And even if you do, you know, there was not for this particular earthquake, but a while back, there was an earthquake in Alaska that was relatively minor. And CNN and other news professional journalism sites had photos of earthquakes that were in completely different areas of the world in the wrong time span. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And it's hard, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to try to boil down this extremely difficult science to something that people can consume i mean it can it can be done but i think it's it's hard for a lot of scientists to do that and it's also sort of hard to get across the language to the public when they don't necessarily have any exposure to sort of the language of seismology and you know we joke a lot about there's a lot of different words in geology and stuff. We always make up words for stuff we don't know, right? Right. <laughs> and so it can be it can be difficult, and that's a challenge. That's as much of a challenge as trying to, you know, keep people safe in the face of wherever these earthquakes are going to happen next. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But today we were actually really lucky. So, that, of course, like with the 2011 earthquake where you and I were both involved with the, the rapid response to that, mm-hmm. uh, there are, of course, teams of people that got on planes very quickly after this earthquake happened (laughs) and are down there working hard. And we were lucky enough to be able to wrangle a little bit of time to talk about these field experiences and what we hope to learn from this earthquake. All right. Well, we're really happy to have guest Dr. Katie Karanen joining us to talk about the recent earthquake in Oklahoma. Hey, Katie, how are you? I'm good. How are you, John? Hey, Katie, it's good to talk to you again. I hope you're enjoying your time out in the field. We're enjoying it and working very hard at the same time. <laughs> uh, yeah, and thanks so much for being able to talk to us just for this small amount of time. Um, there's been all kinds of talk about earthquakes anyway because we've been at an earthquake conference put on by the Oklahoma Geological Survey the last two days. And then fortuitously or unfortuitously, this earthquake happened last Saturday. So um, it's been a pretty big deal. <laughs> right. So it's a large earthquake. Yeah, so this was initially a magnitude 5.6, right? Correct. And so what do we know about this earthquake compared to the the 2011 earthquake, kind of the the last big one in the state's history? Right. So the the USGS initial magnitude was a a 5.6, but the um, initial global CMT, the centroid moment tensor, magnitude was higher to begin with. Um, And the USGS has revised its number upward to agree with that magnitude of a 5.8. So I mean, ultimately, it released more energy. It had more seismic moments than the Prague earthquake did. Right. Um, and so, you know, that from from talking to people locally, 
uh, or in Oklahoma at about the same distance from the two earthquakes. This one was felt more strongly, and, and yeah, there are other differences, but people did feel this was actually a larger earthquake, and the magnitudes now you know, do show that it, it was. Right. And so this, from looking at some of the data, it looked like this was pretty much a pure strike-slip earthquake, right? That's what most of the moment sensors show. That's correct. Have you seen any kind of uh, surface expression of the fault? No, there's the no. There are so there's surface um, kind of deformation, but again, you know, similar to the Prague earthquake in that sense, uh, there was soft sediment that deformed during the earthquake shaking, but no sign of a, a fault rupture, for example. Right. Yeah, we talked um, during the seismic conference today a lot about that. Um, too and saying that there's some sort of circumstantial stuff and like Katie just said it's all this soft stuff sort of like slumps down in sort of low places and along ditches and stuff which was similar to what we saw before but experiencing them both I can definitely say this one felt a lot stronger um, which is evidenced by the assigned magnitudes. So Katie what what has happened for you since last Saturday? I know it's not quite (laughs) a week when this show airs and I think it's been a pretty crazy week. It's been a very crazy week, right? So I, I heard actually from people in Oklahoma that felt it and started texting me right away. And we, uh, I actually sent my students an email with the subject line, please buy tickets to Oklahoma today. And um, <laughs> it's very amazing, but three of them hopped on airplanes on Saturday and we're here on Saturday evening to start deployment on Sunday, oh, along wow. with, um, yeah, two students from Lamont. Um, and then several other students joined and now we have, uh, no. Myself and Heather Savage joined as, as well. So well, the students came initially and started deploying seismometers around the, the aftershock zone. Right. Um, and the let's see. So I basically, the first couple of days, I was sort of madly actually trying to relocate earthquakes and figure out exactly where this fault had happened because what we wanted to do next and what we are doing now is we're putting 453 seismometers and we wanted them directly over the fault. And so this is in sort of a one kilometer by one kilometer box. Wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so it's very dense array. And, and the goal here is you know, as aftershocks happen, it's sort of interesting that there aren't many big aftershocks here, but there's still a lot of small aftershocks. You know, and as they occur, we will record them with you know, nearly unprecedented um, recording. And we hope to learn a great deal about fault mechanics and how faults rupture and what happens in a fault zone leading up to a rupture. So now after the Prague earthquake, we went out and we dug a bunch of holes and planted a bunch of seismometers, (laughs) but um, (laughs) those are really big. Like you're not talking about 450 of those. These are these little nodes, right? That's right. So the first couple of days, um, the students uh, from Cornell and Lamont with students from OSU were out doing what you described. Um, put, they put about 13 sort of larger instruments, more sensitive, with big solar panels, sort of a you know, installation. Um, those take, as you both know, um, you know, several hours to get into the ground. And um, these 453 nodes, if you're not walking through bramble bushes and into and out of creek beds, <laughs> they take somewhere on that you can you know you can do one every five to to ten minutes. Five minutes is actually fairly easy if you don't have difficult terrain. Um, And so it's a a very very different type of instrument. It has a different sensitivity, a different frequency range, but they're so easy to deploy. You can get a lot of them out and then hopefully sort of use them as a combined array to um, basically detect the weakest possible energy. 
Well, and these nodes, I'm not sure exactly what sensor they have in them, but I would guess that they're sensitive down to something like a hertz or so, which is still pretty good. They are. Right. They are sensitive to a hertz. They actually have a corner frequency that's higher, but they've they've been used in previous studies down to a hertz um, pretty effectively. The... And right, we are—we literally are crossing the fault um, with each of our lines. Uh, basically, it's a grid, but we deploy them in lines, uh, and so we are um, sitting right on top of it. And then, along with that, because that's uh, that's you know one kilometer square, and these earthquakes are three to four kilometers deep. We have put out sort of expanding uh, rings. You might say they're not actually circular, but basically, we have um, instruments at greater aperture, not not quite the same density. Okay. to do a better job of actually locating the earthquakes themselves. So how long are these, I mean, this large array of nodes, how long is that going to stay out? So that will stay out only for 30 days. Okay. It's and limited then somebody's, by battery life. And then somebody's got to go pull all those poor things, right? <laughs> Back through the brambles. Uh. Exactly. <laughs> Well, and I, I imagine, I mean, I don't know exactly how fast you're recording, but I would say hundreds of hertz. So that's going to be a lot of data. It's an amazing amount of data. We actually are in discussions. Um, I had planned to do the same study in two weeks in a different part of Oklahoma without, you know, magnitude 5.8. <laughs> um, this earthquake happened, and very fortunately, we had all the paperwork done with the company to get the nodes, etc. And so we said, hey, get them, you know, can you get them there? And they did. Um, but we had already started discussions with the IT people at Cornell saying we need a new data server because we're going to collect a massive amount of data. Now that data is going to be coming in sooner than expected, but yeah, it's, oh, it's going to be, you know, it's a challenge both for storage and just to really think about the processing stream. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you're looking at hundreds of terabytes probably. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty impressive. Um, so, so but, like, you know, big data is is very important these days. I think we'll qualify. Right. Yes. Yeah, that is true. I mean, seismology was the original big data, I would argue. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's, it's because of things like this. You know, it's these very dense deployments at high sample rates <clears throat> driven by, um, you know, a lot of times oil exploration, but also it can be applied in, in different situations like this. Yeah. Right. So what have the field conditions been like while you're out there? Have you had pretty decent weather to do this stuff, or has it just been absolutely nasty and horrible? Uh, the weather, you know, it's been in the low 90s, which okay. it's a little bit hotter. Um, you know, we do have to pay a lot of attention to the safety of the crew, obviously, and making sure there's a lot of water and people that take breaks. So we rotate people out for breaks sort of throughout the day. Um, but, you know, it's it's not been raining. It's not been 105. It's not been 30. So... So it's been weather we can effectively work in. Um, there's a lot of ticks. Yeah. A lot of ticks. <laughs> yep. Yep. We've had that problem this year. Um, so you said this earlier, Katie, is that you said there haven't been a lot of strong aftershocks. That was sort of something that came up um, at the earthquake conference, too, is that it's a little bit different from the Prague earthquake in 2011 in that sense, because there were some pretty big aftershocks associated with that. Yeah. One. And there's, there was like a, a five itself. Um, and then there were fours. Right. Um, and even if you ignore the five and just, you know, there were, there were fours. And so here there haven't been. Um, and the three and uh, something that happened was actually, at least in the USGS location, slightly north of the fault zone. It's, it was definitely a, an interesting question. You know, why are there, haven't there been any, will there be some, um, 
We So we looked at the first few days of data from our network to basically figure out where the earthquakes were to know where to put our dense network because um, it is fairly small and we needed to be really accurate. The, the USGS locations at first can be off by more than that kilometer that we're deploying. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and so we, we looked at the data. It's actually, it's there, it, there's a high frequency of aftershocks. There are many aftershocks. They're just so small that they're not being picked up you know, by the USGS network. So it's uh, you're not having sort of the energy release, but there will be there'll be a lot to study. But it's definitely a question of you know is there going to be a larger aftershock, um, or is this sequence just substantially different from Prague? Because the bigger earthquakes in Prague happened very quickly. Right. Yeah. yeah they did. And so when you're out de- deploying this, even though one kilometer seems like a pretty small area, I know it's got a lot of overlap between people's property boundaries. So have you found that people are pretty interested in helping you do this? So we actually, um, for the for the one kilometer dense array, we found a large enough property that is all within one. Okay. Um, so so that helps. But with that said, we in that whole area of the epicenter, we had just incredible help from the the residents to who were willing to to host the nodes. Um, and so we could have done this actually over multiple properties. We actually chose to we could have made the decision to have the nodes further apart over a bigger area, but we want to do different types of processing that will you know, then have spatial aliasing problems. Right. So we kept them closer together uh, on this one kilometer box. We have our, some of the nodes that we have actually distributed, like I mentioned, we want to do tomography, we want to do better earthquake locations. And so um, you know, there are very few landowners who aren't very enthusiastic to, to help or to let us onto their property. Okay, so there's been a lot of discussion in, in the media about this being related to wastewater injection. And I, would you say that that's pretty well scientifically accepted now that wastewater injection co- do, could and, in fact, does cause some of these earthquakes? In the, in the scientific community, I think that's the general understanding um, that the majority of these Oklahoma earthquakes are related to, to fluid from primarily wastewater disposal. Uh, throughout this, you know, through sort of throughout the north and central Oklahoma areas, and this falls right on the edge of within basically it, but kind of on the perimeter of that zone that's considered to be largely induced. So <clears throat> it would be, I think, the general belief of most scientists that that I work with um, and that I know that this would be more likely to be an induced earthquake than not. Okay. And I mean, it's really interesting because uh, one of the talks today was by someone from the USGS that does the hazard maps. And it's like, Oklahoma is just lit up red now. And, you know, southern Kansas and sort of all the way down into um, around Dallas and the Permian Basin. And that's just lit up redder than southern California is right now. So it's this is pretty interesting. It is. It's, you know, there was a lot of there were questions after Prague. You know, that was a large earthquake. What was that? unusual, you know, we're not going to happen again. We were just going to have the threes and the fours, which, you know, people um, may not always appreciate, but don't cause as much damage or as, as much concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this, then this comes along larger than Prague. And I think it, you know, definitely has a lot to bear upon that conversation, but, you know, clearly this can and will happen again. So what do you think the biggest limitation in our ability to study these sort of, I mean, I guess you could just say anomalous inter sort of plate earthquakes. Like a lot of talk was made about how we just don't have enough sensors. Do you think that's the biggest thing? 
No, I think it's the lack of data on subsurface pressure. Okay. So from the, okay. from uh, the actual wastewater wells? Or uh, um, just other wells that monitor pressure. If we could actually do a better job of making a map, say, of what the pressure is and how that changes temporally, um, I, that's expensive, right? You need to use an active well to take that measurement, or it has to be an open well. Right. Um, and and so it's not it's not easy. It's expensive, uh, but that would give us an understanding of you know how does pressure vary spatially? How does it vary temporally? And then how does that relate to the earthquakes? And are there ways for us to sense it? You know, at the surface. Um, and so some of the things that we're working on, we've actually been working slightly you know 30 kilometers west of this earthquake for the last um, year and a half now. Mm-hmm. And what we're looking at are, you know, how does the velocity change with respect to pressure? How does that change through time? And we're seeing uh, very interesting signals in in the sort of the seismic wave speed in the subsurface. You know, that might might be tied. I and mean, there's a lot of work still required to, to, to fully test that. <clears throat> but we're trying to relate what we see in the field with really dense recording, you know, back to what's observed in the lab uh, in terms of how the wave speed of materials, you know, can change prior to earthquakes, um, what kind of signals might be emitted by the fault prior to earthquakes, um, so we can get sort of a, a better understanding. But ultimately, we need sort of ground truthing from, um, you know, some of the, the well, or some pressure data in the subsurface itself to be able to relate to that to make sure that what we're seeing is actually what we're interpreting it to be. Right. And so you talked about velocity changes, because that's that's where the geology comes in. You know, a lot of times you just make this sweeping, I mean, not you personally, um, but <laughs> you make this sweeping <laughs> sort of, even though I know you probably have, um, like Thanks. this is basement rock, but that's not the case. You know, you've got, you know, the Osage microgranite and you have some rhyolites up there and then big granitic intrusions. And those are all really different. And on these sort of basement faults that are, it's not well known. And I think that's a big deal for geologists where they need to start looking at as well. Right. So I um, have talked to Doug Elmore at OU about these results. And, you know, you're, you, Shannon, it would probably be somebody to, to talk to further. We see these major velocity changes. And obviously the next step is what is causing them? Um, right. You know, is it lower pressure? Is it uh, actually what you know, what comes to mind for me is that it's actually heavily fractured and altered basement. Um, It's directly between, it's directly along the Nemaha uplift. Mm -hmm. And it's in the zone where you expect the highest sort of fracture density. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, in discussions with others who have worked in the basement, I know that there are places that are heavily altered, which would have a, a big impact on the wave speed. And so we need to basically step through kind of the possibilities of things we know can affect velocity and, kind of narrow down the highest probability. Yeah, and I mean, those kind of fractures and damage can not only change the velocity, but they also change the stiffness, which is one of the most critical things for determining whether a fault is going to move in a stable or unstable way. Right. And the temporal evolution of it, which is something we know nothing about, hardly. So that's the goal with this very dense way. Our results in the West are from a slightly larger spacing still. And so by putting this dense array directly over a fault, you know, we hope to be able to probe, you know, some of these, um, you know, we can get wave speed, then we can try to invert it for some of these elastic moduli. Um, you know, we can also get potentially seismic signals that might indicate, you know, whether it's sliding stably or not. Um, again, these are all interpretations as it always is from geophysical data, right. but we can at least relate that back to what's observed in the lab and try to make sense of it kind of in the field scale. And so 
we're trying to bridge as well as we can between um, the lab and the field uh, by doing um, sort of this really high density, high sensitivity work. Right. And also, I guess I had one last question that came to mind, which was what has the, the damage that you've seen been and how is that compared to the 2011 damage? <clears throat> there are broken chimneys, um, as there were uh, in Prague. Um, I spent more time in the first few days at Prague in the field here. It took me, um, my students came immediately and I followed them by several days. But in what I have seen personally, there is less damage to the houses locally than there was in Prague. Um, but you know that could just be a, a sampling bias if I actually spent a lot more time at more houses immediately after the earthquake in 2011. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen population density, but just being from Oklahoma, I think there's probably a few more people out in smaller tracts of land towards Prague than there is up near Pawnee. Too. Yeah, so. <clears throat> that, that's probably, yeah, there, you know, you're finding not, there are not that many houses per section. For, you know, for example, right. we were able to get this entire patch of land um, and there's no other property. There's no other house or structure on this entire property. Right. Yep. Wow, yeah. All right. Well, Katie, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. I know that you've been insanely busy and continue to be <laughs> for quite a while. But hopefully, as soon as you get a chance to look at some of this data, we can have you back on and have another discussion. Sounds great. Thanks, John. Thanks, Shannon. Right, thanks, thanks, Katie. All right. Well, Shannon, I thought that was really great. And we're definitely going to revisit this topic when Katie and some of the other researchers that are out in the field and folks from the Oklahoma Geological Survey are not totally swamped like they are right now. <laughs> right. Um, exactly. Uh, there's a lot of new um, research coming out, too. There's a big paleo seismometer or paleo seismicity experiment going down on the Mears Fault, one of the big quaternary faults in Oklahoma. We're definitely going to talk to people about that. And um, this earthquake show is going to keep us shaking for a while, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> but actually, on a only tangentially related note, uh, I found a pretty interesting paper for everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Hey, with the cowbell is back. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I will say, John, I've I've been super busy this week. I mean, I'm not even out in the field, so I'm not even as busy as most people are dealing with this stuff. And I saw your paper, and the title had the word ray tracing in it, and I said, I can't be bothered with this right now. And then I sat down to read it, and it was amazing. <laughs> This is a short paper. It is available, so you can click the link in the show notes and get the PDF. And you If should. you wish, uh, yes, you should, to uh, hear this report from the Dessert Realism Project at Pixar. Exactly. Um, and this, this intimidating title is Ray Tracing Jello Brand Gelatin by uh, Heckbert. Right. And it's, and it's an oldie, but it's definitely a goodie. Yes. So... <laughs> The idea is ray tracing is something that is done in seismology, which is why I said it's only tangentially uh, yes. veering. But it's most commonly done in computer graphics. So in this case, you have, say, a number of objects in a scene and, of course, a light source. And the objects all have properties, like how much they can reflect or refract light. And you do it in a little bit of a backwards way where you shoot rays out from the camera and then that ray interacts with objects, and you can have it bounce or uh, kind of iterate through this, or recursively move through this as much as you want. 
Of course, it takes more compute time. Right. But you can build photorealistic images of really complex scenes. So I was on board with this being real because they talked about some other things that they use this for besides the, you know, haha jello. Um, you know, he talked about glass balls, robot arms, and then he says that they used it for blue abstract things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> More glass balls. Aquatic blobby things. <laughs> More glass balls. <laughs> yeah, and more chrome balls. And I thought, this is good. This is going to be good. <laughs> and I, I'll link some photos in to actual ray tracing results. But if you think about it, if you go look at uh, scenes in animated movies, modern animated movies, where you see lots of shadows or reflections in a mirror and then reflections of reflections and that kind mm -hmm. of thing, that's mm -hmm. all done with ray tracing. That's pretty impressive. Um, it's cool stuff and only you know this paper's from 1988 but only now can you really start to tell i mean we saw a kids movie because i see lots of kids movies <laughs> and <laughs> it was like the water looked like water like even my husband stopped and was like this doesn't even look like a, an animated picture anymore you know it's unbelievable oh yeah and i mean this is mostly thanks to the advances in computing technology right. like yep. you know gpus and that kind of thing uh but something like Jello actually would be a pretty complex thing right. to model, especially it, if you wanted the dynamics of it, like where you could poke it and have it wiggle the correct ways and that kind of thing. Uh, I thought you were going where I was going to go, which is especially if it has fruit chunks floating in it, because then you've got all kinds of rays bouncing around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, does anybody like that Jello with the fruit chunks in it? Uh, my sister-in-law loves it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm just going to uh, leave it there. I also um, thought it was great that they used the RLS basis, which a basis is just a type of coordinate system. Uh, <laughs> so you could think of RGB, red, green, blue, as a coordinate system <laughs> for colors. Uh, yeah, Shannon's already snort laughing at this. I can't, I can't deal uh, with it. Because the RLS basis is the raspberry, strawberry, lime basis <laughs> to describe jello flavors. It's, and it's great, like, the x-axis is raspberry, the y strawberry, and lime's the z, and it's amazing. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's really good. Um, also, as I find with many of these fun papers, my new favorite quote from a paper <laughs> is in this. We have learned that a good dose of gratuitous partial differential equations is needed to meet the paper quota for impressive formulas. <laughs> right, and so they show this... Uh, well, they say they solve the Schrodinger wave equation with, <laughs> in a spherical coordinate system, and they show what looks to be probably the Schrodinger wave equation. You know, mm -hmm. I see, uh, was that Planck's constant in there yeah, and yeah. a few other things? Yeah. <laughs> and they have this constant J that's a multiplier for everything. And they say, in other words, to a first approximation, J equals zero. <laughs> so everything goes away. That, uh, that sort of sums up partial differential equations to me <laughs> right. it really does like it's a joke but it's also kind of for real <laughs> yeah and also i thought this was interesting this is it's kind of dates the paper a little bit they say a <laughs> preliminary implementation has been completed on the vax 11 which vax is a pretty old computer architecture mm -hmm. if you're familiar with it uh and cray was a brand of supercomputer at the time right and they say that to create a picture using the full Jello engine simulation, we estimate a one that one CPU eon of cray time and a lot of hard work would be required. Uh, but they made several simplifications and approximations since this article is due today, as it says. Uh, they then go on to say, oh, let's see. There's something about having hours to spare before 
uh, this is submitted. But somewhere they said that they could use a cluster of, I think it was Atmega computers. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that was pretty good. Right. Um, and there are actually references in this. A room full, actually. A room, a room full. full of them, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, they don't stop there because any good scientist is going to tell you where their work is going. And so they say their future research areas um, include development of algorithms for ray tracing puddings and other dessert foods. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I thought it was interesting that a lot of of kind of the things that are talked about in here, even though this paper is kind of tongue in cheek, a lot of these were problems in that have either been addressed or are still being addressed. Oh, right. Exactly. Now. <laughs> it's, it's still actually a rather pertinent paper, even though it was written to be... Oh, kind of I, funny. I hope every Pixar employee, we should ask um, our, our listener that works at Pixar, um, do they like pass this out to you in your like welcome packet? I really hope they do. Right. <laughs> oh, they even say in here, John, I didn't even notice. Another outstanding problem is the suspension of fruit in Jello, in particular. Oh, fresh, fresh pineapple and kiwi fruit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, and, so I thought this was a, a just a pretty hysterical paper yeah, with it's some. Good. Some real world <laughs> implications. Uh, one of the conclusions is that Jello is hydrodynamically captivating, and that is absolutely true. Oh yes, <laughs> absolutely true. Oh, good pick, good pick. Well, there you go. There is your short and sweet fun paper Friday <laughs> that you can all get to, and I would be interested to look up and see. Yeah, do you like that pun? That was that good. Just dropped in there. Uh, yep. <laughs> But it would be interesting uh, to see if any of these folks, so Siegel, Heckbert, and Charlie Charlie Gunn and John Bradstreet are still actually working at Pixar. But it looks like there was some some lab work, if you will. They show one of the one of the authors holding some kind of instrument, uh, says analyzing the jello sample. I'm not exactly sure what they're doing. But they also had even talked about in here that this was an object oriented software implementation with ingredients of the of the jello as different uh, objects or instances <laughs> of the objects. I, I, it just had a lot of things that it made did. me very happy. I mean, and the, the 80s pictures are worth it if you don't even look at anything else. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely true. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I guess. Uh, that's probably going to wrap it up for us this week. We had a show that was planned to go out this week that was actually an interview that will come out next week. Yes, yes. <laughs> so forgive that the uh, the introduction may be a little bit stale on that. And we will see you after that. So, Shannon, how can they get a hold of us if they want to send us a fun paper or some comments on the show? Well, please email us, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. And as John said, it seems like we're on Twitter a lot, having a lot of really good conversations. We are at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. And as always, we have a Don't Panic channel in uh, the Swung Slack chat room, and that's always pretty fun as well. Yes, and until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Yes, and until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Woohoo. I'm definitely putting that in.